Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. In the summer of 1948, three years before he would ever set foot in Afghanistan, the American J. Christie Wilson, who was studying in Edinburgh at the time, went with a friend to the opening ceremony of the London Olympics. Raised in Iran to missionary parents, Christie had sensed God calling him to Afghanistan for most of his life, since he was about five years old. He was once asked by an Iranian pastor what he wanted to do when he grew up, to which he responded, I want to be a missionary in Afghanistan. But missionaries are not allowed in Afghanistan, the pastor said. Christie piped back, that's why I want to be a missionary there. At the opening ceremony of the Games, he was amazed as all of the different nations of athletes paraded past to see athletes from Afghanistan parading around the stadium. And he later told the story of how he prayed for them then and there for opportunities to reach these athletes while they were in London for the Games. Later that day, Christie and his friend went to the Bible Society office in London to see if they had any Bibles available in Farsi the closest language to the Afghan dialect of Dari. The Bible Society did, and they were more than willing to give away these Bibles, not only to athletes from Afghanistan, but to all the athletes from whatever country in their own languages. They even suggested stamping the Bibles with the Olympic rings in gold on the cover to make the gift more special. Much later, during his 22-year teaching and church planning ministry in Kabul, Afghanistan, Christy Wilson, who became so well-respected in the nation that he privately tutored the crown prince, was approached by a student who asked if they could talk. They went out for a walk in the garden of the school, and when they were alone, the student told Christy that he'd been reading a very interesting book and wanted to ask some questions. He pulled it out and it was a copy of the New Testament in Farsi with the Olympic rings embossed on the cover. It had been loaned to him by one of the athletes who brought it back from London as a treasured possession. Christie later reflected, the Afghan contestants had not won any Olympic gold medals that year, but they had received something far more precious, God's word. As David says in Psalms, the scriptures are more to be desired than gold, yes, than much fine gold. I don't know about you, but stories like that both inspire and challenge me. Inspire because here is a story of someone who knew what mattered and made it his life's work to achieve that goal, not just at those Olympic Games, but for the 22-plus years of service. But challenge, because that's not me, not here in Sydney, Australia, not me in risk or 
in level of isolation or in pioneering gospel work. And sometimes the missionary heart of the Apostle Paul can feel a little bit like that too. I don't know if you picked it up as we were reading that passage, but listen to it again. Romans chapter 15, verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and as far around as Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. And then he says this, Thus I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news not where Christ has already been named, so that I may not build on someone else's foundation. It has always been my ambition. How would you answer that question? Or finish that statement? Maybe it's to land a certain job or career move or to travel to or move to a foreign country or to write a novel or non-fiction work that is published and widely read. Paul's answer is It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been known. And so this morning, we're talking about mission, about making Christ known. And if you feel a little bit like I do sometimes, overwhelmed by the example of people like Paul or missionaries like Christy Wilson, I want you to stay with me. Because Romans 15 has something for all of us. Whether we're taking the gospel to unreached people groups or working as lawyers and engineers, as sales assistants and marketers, as doctors and lecturers, as students, as stay-at-home parents and neighbours and friends. And if you're here and you're just asking questions about Christianity, I'm hoping this passage might give you a little bit of insight into why someone might decide to so radically reshape their life around Jesus. What might make someone do that? And why might that be a beautiful thing? And so we're going to look at the passage this morning under three headings as we get a sense of Paul's missionary heart and what he's hoping to do and how that all fits together. Number one, we're going to look at the motive for mission. Number two, we're going to look at the goal of mission. And number three, we're going to look at the shape of mission. So number one, the motive for mission, joy that overflows in praise. See, for Paul, mission is not merely a duty, but a passion. He starts by explaining how he views his ministry, what motivates him to take the risks that he has, and, how to, and why he's so unashamed in gospel proclamation. He says, verse 15, Nevertheless, on some points, I've written to you rather boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's two types of people in the Jewish mindset of the world back in the first century. There's Jews, the descendants of Abraham, and then there's everybody else, non-Jews, called Gentiles. And Paul We've already seen this. He sees his calling to be specifically a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. But what's more important for us to notice this morning is that his ministry is viewed as 
priestly service. He speaks about the Gentiles as an offering, which is acceptable to God, having been sanctified, made holy by the Spirit of God. That's kind of odd because if you've been following along with us over the last few weeks, you'll maybe remember that Paul's just been saying that Old Testament food laws and holy days, well, they're not binding anymore. Hasn't the temple system with its sacrifices also been left behind? What's, What's this whole language of priestly service doing here? Well, I understand you've got to go back to the, uh, chapter 12, which begins the, the kind of so what section of the letter. In chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, Paul's been describing the glorious story of Jesus the Messiah, God's plan to reverse the history of the world and bring people from death to life, from sin to joyful obedience. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, in view of God's mercies... Offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or to put it in language that's just a little bit more straightforward than Paul, which you often have to do, give yourself totally to God in light of all that Jesus has given to you. Give yourself totally to God, in light of all that Jesus has given to you. And in the Old Testament, there were two basic kinds of offerings that you could make in the temple. There were sin offerings designed to turn away the wrath of God. And there were dedication or thanksgiving offerings designed to express gratitude to God for His goodness and mercy. And the New Testament is really clear. Jesus has become the one true sin offering. And so in Hebrews, we read that we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. The sin offering's been made. There's nothing more to do there. Christ's sacrifice, his death is enough for all time. And so what Paul's talking about here in chapter 12 and also in chapter 15 are the other kinds of offerings, thanksgiving, gratitude offerings that are made in response to God's incredible kindness and mercy. And here in this chapter, the offering is the Gentiles themselves. Paul offers his own life as a living sacrifice to God and serves him in everything, proclaims the gospel, and that overflows in Gentiles hearing the message and responding in faith and offering their own praise to God as a fragrant aroma to him. And the point is that evangelism, sharing Jesus, making him known, is a way of giving God praise and thanks. Evangelism is a way of giving God praise and thanks. It's part of making our lives an offering for Christ. It's not just an add-on for the spiritually gifted or for high achievers in the Christian life. And, and that makes sense, right? Because in many ways, evangelism is simply just the overflow of praise. You might have heard this one before, but it's, it's good, so it's worth hearing again. C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. He says, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring people deliberately brings it into check. The world rings with praise, 
Lovers praising their loves. Readers their favourite poet. It's very British, isn't it? Walkers praising the countryside. Even more British. Players praising their favourite game just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it magnificent? And so writing about the Psalms of praise to God, Lewis says, the psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all people do when they speak of what they care about. Mission is an overflow of our thankfulness and gratitude, our praise towards God. That's the reason that we think that telling testimonies of God's work in your life is such a good way to share Jesus with people. It's why we've got a resource that some of our gospel communities have used called Telling Your Story with Jesus as the Hero. Because more than fine-sounding arguments, more than apologetic skill, more than succinct gospel presentations, what makes evangelism compelling is when it's offered out of the place of, let me tell you what Jesus has done. He's wonderful, and he's been very kind to me. You've seen this, haven't you? The grace of God sinks into a person's heart, maybe yours, for the very first time when you became a Christian, And you just suddenly have this overwhelming drive to share what God has done in your life with others. You see it in somebody else and it's infectious. It's one of the reasons why new believers, even though they're often young in faith and may not know very much about faith, are often incredibly effective witnesses for Jesus. A bit like the blind man in John chapter 9 who when questioned about Jesus said, I don't know whether he's a sinner. He doesn't even know whether Jesus is a sinner or not. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Do you like that for a testimony to Jesus? One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. And part of the challenge for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time is not to lose sight of the astounding grace of God. To not let it grow a little bit familiar in a way that means that it doesn't captivate our hearts again. We need to seek to be refreshed by it over and over again so that it overflows in witness to others. And when we do this, we offer priestly service to God. Not just Paul doing that, but each of us when we Speak of Jesus. We offer priestly service. The motive for our mission is joy in God that overflows in praise. But then secondly, the goal of mission is faith that overflows in obedience. See, if mission is at its heart an overflow of thanks and praise, then what does mission aim at? Well, Paul says in verse 18 that it's not just a goal of converting people. He says... For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. Obedience is where Paul began the letter back in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, 
that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And then right at the end of the letter, chapter 16, verse 26, he talks about God's purpose in all of his salvation plans is to bring about the obedience of faith. And it's just important to get that, right? That conversion isn't the end of the story. It's not just that you kind of get to the gate and make a decision for Jesus and then suddenly everything else doesn't matter after that. Becoming a Christian is just the beginning. When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel in the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, he's inviting us to start out on a new journey, a new adventure. And so one scholar translates the Greek word for repent as change your purpose. Becoming a Christian, it sets you on the way of Jesus. And the goal is that your whole life becomes more and more shaped by Jesus. And as a result, more and more shows, off, shows him off to those around you. That's why in that famous passage, the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus doesn't say go and make converts, but go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The goal of mission is complete life change, which means if you're new to the faith, then you need to know you've got a bit of a way to go. And if you've been following Jesus for 30 plus years, you need to know you've still got a way to go. You still need to be evangelized. Not so that you move from death to life, but so that the message, the truth, the reality of Christ and his love for you sinks deeper into your soul. And you find yourself walking away from sin and into joyful obedience in God. As we sometimes say around here, you never graduate from grace. We need it at every point in our life. But it's really important also just to see the direction here. It's not that the obedience comes first, it's that faith comes first. It's the obedience of faith, or we might say the obedience that comes from faith. In other words... It's because we believe that we obey, because we know that our salvation is already secure in Christ, that we can freely and joyfully offer everything to Him who offered everything for us. The goal of mission is faith that overflows in obedience. And one of the things that means is that when you disciple somebody, if you are doing that, when you give your time and your energy and use your experience as a follower of Jesus to help a younger Christian, grow in their faith, then you're participating in God's mission. When you offer an encouraging word that helps a person look back to Jesus when they are tempted to doubt his goodness and trustworthiness, you're participating in God's mission. When you gently and lovingly call out the sin of somebody in the community, not to humiliate them, but to help them grow, you're participating in God's mission. Thirdly, the shape of mission then, blessing that overflows in blessing. See, in verses 20 to 23, Paul lets us in a little bit on his own purpose in mission, as well as inviting the Roman church to think through what their purpose and participation in mission is as well. And about himself, he says that he makes it his ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ is already named, so as not to build on someone else's foundation. 
And then in verse 22, he continues, this is the reason that I've been so often hindered from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, I desire as I have for many years to come to you when I go to Spain. Rome was a city of the Gentiles. Rome was a place where Paul could have gone on mission But when Paul writes this letter, this was a church that he had not planted. This was a city to which he had not been. And he says, I didn't need to do that because the work had already been started there. And I see my task not as building on someone else's foundation, but on starting something new. He was a pioneer. Others were going to places where the gospel had already had a foundation. They saw their ministry as building up existing churches or discipling, um, discipling ministry where believers were already gathering. But Paul, he wanted to go to the hardest soil, the most untested waters. He was in it for the gospel proclamation in the Afghanistan of his day. And you get a sense of just how consumed he is with this when he talks about saying he wants to go to Spain So far, Paul's ministry has been in the Greek-speaking world on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. He's up and down those regions through modern-day Palestine and Turkey and Greece and the Balkans. But in seeking to go to Rome, Paul wants to use it as a slingshot move to then head across to Spain, to the west, to the Latin-speaking world. It's as if Paul sees a life of mission like a well which flows over into the dry desert and it spreads life wherever it goes. And so he wants to go to places where there is no water and begin a work of God there. And one of the interesting things is that it means that he leaves a lot of cities and churches in pretty precarious positions. If you take the church in Rome, scholars believe that in Paul's day, it probably only had 100 to 200 Christians meeting in it, in a city of about a million people. You put that differently, more people will likely gather today across Christchurch in a West than would have gathered to be heard the reading of Paul's letter in Rome. And that was the only church there. And Paul says to them, It's over to you. You've got this. I don't need to spend years and years discipling and evangelizing in Rome, though I could do that. But I don't need to do that because you're there. You're able to do that work. And so I'm going to go and start something new somewhere else. And that's one of the reasons that here at Christchurch in the West, we see it as part of our ministry strategy to plant more churches. It's one of the reasons that we planted here a couple of years ago. Because the task of making Jesus known in every part of the world doesn't just belong to missionaries and paid gospel workers, it belongs to believers in local churches. Theologian and missiologist Christopher Wright, he puts it this way, he says, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. 
This is what God's on about, seeing lives and communities transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so this is what we are on about too. So three practicalities, just as we conclude. Three things that we can learn just from these passages about what it looks like for us to participate in this as well. First, notice in verse 18 that Paul says that his ministry has been in word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. In other words, it's a holistic mission. He's not just going around sharing evangelistic tracts and moving on. No, there's deeds and miraculous signs and power that accompanies it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, the beginning of that letter, that he and his co-workers, they shared not only the gospel with the Thessalonian believers, but their lives as well. It makes a difference. It's important for the way that we share the gospel, that it comes with the whole of life. And for Paul, as one of the apostles, that looked like powers of signs and wonders, probably miraculous healings, which were something that was particularly present in that apostolic age as a sign of the power of the risen Jesus. And of course, it's not impossible that the risen Jesus through his Holy Spirit might work those kind of miraculous things out in our midst as well. But it's also the case that we accompany our preaching, our, our sharing, our testimony telling with the kind of lives that look transformed, by the kind of generosity and sacrifice that accompanies the message that we speak. I think it's one of the reasons that Paul speaks about diverting in his plans to get to Spain to go back to Jerusalem, which is the opposite direction from where he is in Antioch. To take an offering of financial help to support the Christian people who've been persecuted in that city. See, he knows he wants to get to Spain. He knows that's where the mission field for him lies. But he also knows that this is a moment where both Jews and Gentiles can come together in an incredible show of unity, where these new believers in cities all around the Mediterranean have been gathering and giving sacrificially of themselves, not just word, but indeed, to bless the church back in Jerusalem, which shows the transformative effect of the gospel on people's lives. And so as we live on mission, we seek to do it holistically, in word and in deed. But secondly, Paul wants the partnership of the Roman believers. In verse 24, he says that when he goes to Spain, he hopes to see them on his journey and to be sent on by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. That language of being sent on by you, that is a technical piece of language in the ancient world for basically being supported by them. He wants them to supply him with travelling companions, with letters of introduction for the parts of the world that he's going to. He's hoping that someone might have a connection with a cousin who might have an Airbnb that he can rent for cheap in Barcelona or Madrid or whatever those cities were called back then. He's hoping to raise financial support for his way. And that's one of the reasons that 
We partner individually and as a church with gospel workers who do their work throughout our country here in Australia and throughout the world. That's why as a church we have a gospel partners ministry and we support financially about 10 gospel partners and some more again on top of that in prayer. We're going to hear from one of them in a few moments. Because we know that even if we're not in a position to take the gospel message all the way throughout the world, we can participate in that, partner in that, and share the joy of seeing it go out through the ministry of others. And thirdly, we pray. Verse 30, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf. He knows that his ministry back in Jerusalem, where he's going to give the offering, could be disastrous if it's not rightly accepted. He knows that he could be imprisoned and tried and even executed if he falls into the wrong hands. And if you read the story of the book of Acts, you'll see that he does get arrested, but he manages to be freed. Those prayers worked. He seeks prayer that he might get to Rome. And that's one of the reasons we pray for those who are serving around our world. It's also one of the reasons that we pray for ourselves, to be willing to pray that God might stir up not just the hearts of people who are paid or who are set aside for full-time gospel service, but that he might stir up our own hearts. We pray for opportunities with those people that we love and know. We pray that we might position ourselves as somebody that God can use. We pray that some of those small things, even just coming up in the life of our community, things like our next wine and cheese event on mental well-being and God, might be opportunities to invite a friend for whom that kind of a message, seeing how faith might tie into mental well-being, would maybe touch a nerve or help them to see how God cares for them and how Christian, the Christian life might be something that is worth exploring. We pray about how things like Alpha might be a way to invite somebody on a journey where they might meet Jesus for the first time and see their lives transformed by his grace.